everybody. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Carrie. Oh, I'm Emma. I'm Dean. And Dean's going to tell us a story, tell us some <laughs> obscure historical fact. Now stop it. Make something, something up out no. of his own I'm going to guess brain. it's about a cryptozoology. Thank God. This is little known, though. Very little known, actually. I like to call it the mass murderer and the... No, hold on. <laughs> I like to call it the mind reader and the mass murderer. Okay. Our story starts in Manville, Alberta, in Canada. Oh, it's a Canadian episode. It is. Foreign. <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> it's on July 8th, 1928. It's an oldie. Yeah. Nearly a century ago. The I probably had some relatives in Canada back then. Did you? I mean, I do now, but... Then you probably did probably then. Probably did yeah. then, yeah. Even, the even more back then. All right. Fun. Thanks for that, Kara. Yeah. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP, received a phone call. Now, I'm assuming... A phone call? that it, I don't know that it really was the RCMP, because it's probably some dumbass American wrote this. I, I did a lot of sources. Only one said the RCMP. It's probably just the local police, honestly. And somebody thought, well, the police in Canada must be a Mountie. That's all they have, right? (laughs) Guys on horses in red shirts? No. So the authorities were called, and the caller was frantic. The caller was a Dr. Harley Heaslip. The good doctor was at the Booher family farm about five miles outside Manville. That is spelled B-O-O-H-E-R. No idea. I'm going to say Booher. Yeah, so probably Booher. Booher yeah. sounds yeah. like Booher, Booher. She's terrible. Wait, where did you say where Manville is? Exactly. Manville's about five miles. I'm sorry, the farm's about five miles outside Manville. Manville's in Alberta. Not super close, but not super far from Edmonton. Okay, great. Does that help you at all? No, I know exactly yeah. what east you're or talking west. about now. Uh, of Edmonton? I don't no, know. We'll find is out later. Edmonton east or west on, oh, in Canada? Canada? It's kind of in the middle. Oh, okay. That's helpful. That does, thank you. It's Canada's Midwest. <laughs> so the caller, although they don't call it that. And probably even colder. Yes. The, the family, the Boer family, lived on their farm outside Manville with two hired farmhands. Heaslip begged the police to get out to the farm fast, right now. There had been murders, <gasps> plural. Uh-oh. Quote, half of them had been murdered. Heaslip cried into the phone. Yikes. Constable Fred Olson, he immediately set out for the farm. When he got there, he found that Mrs. Rose Boer, also called Eunice, I'm going to call her Rose. She was kind of the family matriarch. She's the mom. She, She was found slumped face first onto the dining room table. Oh. she just her think of her just like falling down onto yeah. the, the table as she's seated there at the at the dining room. Uh-huh. She had a nasty bullet wound in the back of her head, or it could have been square in the upper back. Accounts vary. Throughout oh, this, okay. I'm gonna have a few accounts vary. Most of the variation is from a 1950 article in McLean magazine, which is kind of like I don't know, like the Canadian Life magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, so it doesn't help many of our mm-hmm. viewers. But you know, a general, a, a major mass circulation journal interest magazine. And the guy who wrote it, a lot of things disagree with every single other other source, and so most of the sources have her being shot in the back. But of the head. this article is written almost 
20 something years later. Yes, it was okay. 20 years later. So okay. I, let's say she was likely uh, shot in the back of the head. Okay. She oldest son Fred he was also dead. He was 21. He was lying nearby in the kitchen, shot either again once or three times in the head and lying and he was dead on the kitchen floor as he appeared apparently was was rushing into the dining room to Check in on the, on, the, on the gunshot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fortunately, the two younger Boer sisters, Dorothy and Algertha, ah. age 19 and 17 respectively, they had been in town that day, and so they had escaped the carnage. Mm-hmm. Dorothy had also escaped the carnage of being named Algertha. She <laughs> was doubly lucky. Algertha. Algertha. I mean, Canada. Interesting. No, no. Rose's husband, Henry Boer, and his youngest son, 20-year-old Vernon Boer had been out working on separate parts of the farm all day long and into the evening. So each was alone and not in contact with the other Mm. while this was occurring, in fact, all day long. Okay. Both said they had heard gunshots sometime early that evening. But this was farm country. It's kind of rural Canada, right? Okay, hold on. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Only those two have been killed? Are we not done? Just pause. Okay. Just because uh, I didn't say that that's not half so far. That's only a third. There's also the hyperbole of someone finding uh, coming to a house and finding two people dead. Okay. Just, just give Doctor Harley Heaslip a little bit of okay. slack. Okay. Right? <laughs> he needs to be more He's precise his in his language. Uh, so this is rural Canada. So when they heard those gunshots, they weren't. You know, you're used to hearing one or four <laughs> gunshots right. in that part of the country, so it wasn't that alarming to them. Sure, so they maybe had to put their dog down. You're close to right. Foxes had been raiding farms lately, getting mm. foul, so they thought it was just someone shooting at the foxes. Sure, right. Killing some foxes. This is someone fox killing. We're just yeah. going on for the work. I'm going to give these Albertans <laughs> southern accents, by the way. <laughs> if you yeah. work on a farm, you have a southern I accent. I think you have to, no matter yeah. where you are. Olson, the constable, as you recall, he listened to the story from the surviving Boer men, Henry and Vernon. Son Vernon said he had been the one who found the bodies uh, of his mother and brother inside the farmhouse. He had returned from men defense out in the Western 40, I have no idea, <laughs> at around 8 p.m. So he said he, he got back to the farmhouse at 8 p.m. from doing his work. It's hard work out there in the Canadian farm. Yeah, it okay? is. And he had, to his shock and horror, found his mother and brother dead. He had then called Dr. Heaslip, who raced over to the house, and then he, he slip had called the police from the house. Mm. Just before Constable Olson had got to the farmhouse, though, the sisters had returned from town, and someone, it's not clear who, I don't know if that presumes it's one of the sisters, or someone maybe had gone out looking, they had spotted a third victim. Oh. This was Gabriel Garambi. He was a G-O-R-O-M-B-Y Probably not pronouncing it right. Mm-hmm. He was a farmhand. He had been shot twice in the back of the head at the bunkhouse doorway. So his body lay in the bunkhouse doorway. It's dark when they got there, right? So apparently he wasn't seen right away. Yeah. And I don't know where, how far the relation of the bunkhouse was to the to the main farmhouse. I don't think very far, though. So it seems likely to me, anyway, that he had probably gone out to investigate the shots and seen someone with a gun coming near him yeah. and had turned yeah. and tried to flee back into the bunkhouse when he was shot in the back of the head. He that's was my, unsuccessful. He was unsuccess- sadly unsuccessful. That's my, that's my supposition anyway. At this point, though, 
so Henry and Vernon get back. He, Constable Olsen takes the story. And then Henry, the father, even with Constable Olsen there in the house, sort of uh, just blew up. He freaked out. He says, I know who did this. Rosick. Where is Rosick? I'll kill him with my bare hands. Rosick was William Rosick. He was the second hired hand that they had working there at the farm. Mm. Henry grabbed a flashlight and he burst from the house toward the barn. He ran out toward the barn with the family and the constable chasing after him. So he he was there first and he got into the barn first. When the others got there, Henry had already found Rosick. He was lying dead on the barn floor, two shots in the back of his head. So it's like they got into the barn and there's a flashlight shining on this dead body and that's Rosick with shot in the head. So So Rosick didn't do it. Four dead. Yeah. Don't you feel pretty bad now, Henry? Blaming well, poor Rosick. Yeah, I guess that was the, the logical yeah. deduction, but at least for, for the father of Vernon Boer anyway. So Olson, the constable, he deduced that Rose Boer must have been the first victim. Mm. She had been picking strawberries. So she had like a plate of strawberries, and she had been like picking, I guess, the stems off or just somehow messing with strawberries on the dining room table with her back to the killer and was shot in the back mm. of the head. So... He, he, that gunshot then must have been what brought Fred, the, right. uh, her oldest son, rushing toward the kitchen, um, t- towards the dining room to be shot in the kitchen by the killer uh, and, and killed there. Seems right. I mean, that's yeah. um, 99.9%. That's certainly what happened. The hired hands, Olsen figured, were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. The killer must have believed they'd heard the shots. Yeah. And so he went to. F- uh, either first the bunkhouse or first the barn and shot Garambi and then shot uh, Rosick or vice versa. And, and the, of course, the motivation there was just to leave no witnesses. But it appears if they're shot there, unless they're both chased into, like I said, where, given where Garambi was, it's likely he came out of the bunkhouse and maybe he was walking toward the house, like, what is this gunshot about? And then f- was able to flee all the way back to the bunkhouse before being right. shot. But it's odd that, and, and then... Now there's even so there's at least six gunshots. Then, if the main sources are correct, yeah. If that and if that order is is correct, when um, Rosick was shot in the barn, so was he? Uh, you know, just working the barn and ignoring six gunshots from pretty close quarters. I don't know. Or did he flee into the barn and he was also yeah, coming out? So yeah. he was able to get all the way to the barn. Yeah, he could have <laughs> been behind Garambi and maybe, or maybe they split. You know, maybe they were both coming over and they and one fled to the bunkhouse and one fled to the barn, but why go inside the barn? And I don't read anything about being dragged in there, either one. Yeah. They appeared to be... Shot where they were. Exactly. Maybe there huh. was some sort of weapon he wanted to grab in the maybe. barn. Maybe. Maybe. Or at least maybe you, maybe you think you're trying to find a hiding place. Maybe yeah. he even witnessed and, you know, instead of trying to flee down the road or something like that, thinking I'll never make it, I can go hide in the barn. Yeah. I don't know. There was, however... One kind of a witness that was suggestive, and that was Vernon himself. Vernon, again, the youngest son, he was the one out working, and he was who found the bodies. He claimed that he had been, he had, I'm sorry, he had seen Garambi, the hand, talking to two men just the day before. And he, Vernon, didn't recognize those men. He thought, they're, are they like drifters or vagrants looking for a handout? He thought they looked kind of shady to him. He described them for the police. The police sent out like a sketch and sent out an APB if they had APBs in Canada in 1928. Yeah. <laughs> they, they probably let's say they did. And w- at least they sent out the description to other officers, but no one ever came forward or no one ever saw these two 
drifters in the area. They yeah. were never apprehended or seen. That was the word of Vernon. So the local police, they knew this mass murder case was a little bit beyond them there in Manville, Alberta. Mm-hmm. So they called in the big boys from the big city. This, in this case, that was Edmonton. It's about oh. 105 miles, carry are 170 kilometers. Thank you. West <laughs> of Manville. Does that help uh-huh. situate it for, for you? Sure. Okay. Edmonton police sent their inspector James Hancock. He was their chief of the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. So oh. he was a pretty big dude. They yeah. said, this is a big case. I mean, for Alberta, I mean, four people murdered in one house was a humongous yeah. case. How big of a city is Edmonton at that time? It's a pretty big city. Is it? Yeah, they had a Bureau of Criminal Investigation. That's how I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the population was, but it was a good-sized city, I'm sure. He arrived at Manville the day after the horrific discovery the previous night. Hancock noted that the event was clearly not a robbery. Nothing was stolen. Couldn't have been a robbery, he, he presumed, which is, again, fair deduction. He also figured that since Rose was apparently calmly tending to her strawberries when she was murdered, that she probably knew the murderer. It wasn't just that she was the first. He further deduced that she was likely she likely knew him. Otherwise, she would have, if she had heard him, she would have turned around. If he was a like a, not a stranger or something like not a stranger necessarily, but not a family member or not a, or mm-hmm. not one of the hands or something like that, she would have turned around also just to not be rude. Right. So he thought the fact that she her back was was still to her strawberries whenever was right behind her and shot her in the back of the head that she must have known her killer. Unless somebody snuck in super quietly. True. That's very true. But his maybe guess... She, maybe she sings while she shucks her you know, strawberries or whatever shucks, it's called. Okay, first, okay, okay let's, let's unpack that. Okay, first of all, we're talking about singing while yes. you do things with strawberries. And then secondly, sure. we're talking about shucking okay. strawberries, which I don't Well, believe. your terminology was messing with strawberries. Yeah. So Better I'm, than shucking strawberries, no, quite frankly. Picking at you shuck the that dressing gross gross picking <laughs> at she's, that sounds gross she was deceding not only <laughs> <she was doing, laughs> that would be pretty extreme I'll be done next year this, this is exhausting work but someone has to do it so going into the bunkhouse to find and kill and the bunkhouse in the barn to kill the hands he figured was just you know. Uh, that indicated to the detective, to Hancock, that the killer knew the lay of the land. Yeah. He knew some, again, the bunkhouse, maybe not so much, because if he was visible, you don't have to know where the bunkhouse is or whatever, that someone might be in there. But the barn, being inside the barn, that indicated to uh, Hancock that he knew someone should be in that barn, I better go kill them. Mm. To him. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, both are are perhaps, both are, are fair starting points, I think. One big, big hurdle right away to solving the case, though, was the lack of a murder weapon. Whatever that murder weapon was, it was not there. Yeah, they took it with them. I would. Yeah. None was found on the scene. The police, however, did find a spent cartridge from a 303 caliber rifle. It was apparently a Lee Enfield manufactured rifle, if we want to be specific. Sure. Or it was a Ross military rifle, oh, because again, Lord. accounts vary. Super annoying. I'm going to go with Lee Enfield. Rifle, because again, only the McLean's guy says it was a Ross military rifle. But it was a rifle. The family did not have such a weapon. So they're thinking maybe it's a, you know, logically they think, was it a drifter then? Something like that. Maybe these two drifters that Vernon's talking about, maybe they had a rifle. 
Uh, could it even have been a targeted killing? Some kind of an assassination? You know, they didn't have a rifle, so they must have brought it with them. Yeah. And they took it with them when they left. That seemed odd. Yeah. So police checked around a little bit, though, and they had found out pretty quickly that one of the neighbors of the Boers, his name was Charles Stevenson, his 303 rifle and a box of shells had been stolen from his house recently, a did few days before. Did he report it? He did. Okay. More, more intriguing, though, was that the rifle that was stolen, he kept it in a closet, and even within the closet, it was out of sight. Hmm. And nothing else. Was stolen. Was stolen from his house. So it was somebody who knew where That's the weird. neighbor kept his rifle. Yeah. And, and wanted to, and just a rifle. There was it was an odd burglary if that was a burglary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very no. lucky. Yeah. I'll check that. Oh, rifle. I'll take that Perfect. and I'm gone. So it is. It's got to be somebody that knows both families. Sure seems like it. Yeah. So yeah, they're thinking this is an inside job of some sort. Uh-huh. Suspicion naturally centered on two people: Father Henry, yeah, or son Vernon, yeah. Yes. Both had no alibi since they were working alone mm-hmm. and apart from one another. The two men, however, reacted to news of the murders very, very differently. We know that husband Henry was devastated. First, yeah. he wanted to go kill Rosick, and then he was just, he was sobbing. He was just, to the police, he was clearly devastated by the killings. Vernon, however, was most more stoic. Okay. In fact, maybe a little too unmoved thought the police. So they started asking around, as they will. The police soon found out from friends of Vernon that he had recently been fighting with his mom. He was enraged by her interference in a relationship with a local girl. Mm. In fact, they had recently broken up. And in no small part, this was due to his mother's meddling. So his mother didn't approve of this girl. She let him know it. I don't know if she let the girl know it too, whatever. She was putting her foot down about this relationship, and that really pissed off Vernon. See, that's why I pretend to like all my kids. She does. Significant others. The operative word is pretend. <laughs> do a really good job of it. She does. She does a good job with it. She does. She's an actor. She's a natural yeah, actor. Clearly. That's what she is. Clearly. So that's, you know, that's getting intriguing. Then a married couple who also lived nearby the Boer farmhouse, they came forward and claimed that they had seen Vernon's horse heading for the Stevenson house. That's where the rifle was stolen. Uh-huh. The Sunday previous during church services. Oh, so in other words... A, that'd be good time. Great timing. They know Everybody's he's... Gone. Everybody's gone. Yeah. There's a church. church. Yep. Including Charles Stevenson. They could not identify... They, they saw a rider, a man a, was riding the horse... They could not positively identify who the writer was, the writer was, yeah. but they were sure that was the sorrel pony of Vernon. Sorrel's a kind of a coloration. Yes. And so they knew that was Vernon's horse. They could recognize that. And Vernon supposedly didn't go to church that Sunday? I don't know. Then another witness, the guy named Scott, he came forward. I think it's the last name, by the way, not his first name. We'll just call him <laughs> Todd. He came forward. He was also a neighbor. He, now, remember that Vernon said he had returned at about 8 o'clock that night to find the horror? Yeah. Well, Scott, the neighbor, said he had stopped by at 6.30, I guess just for a visit. And guess who had answered the door at 6.30? Vernon. Vernon. <gasps> Vernon. Vernon told Scott that, oh, I'm sorry, no one else is home. Oh. He wasn't lying. That's 
Vernon yes, said... Yes, he was lying. Yeah, he wasn't lying, they but he was not alive. was home. Jesus. So in a sense, he wasn't lying. Vernon said... And, and Vernon said, oh, yeah, no, that happened, but that was the day before my mom, et cetera, got killed. He's just mixing up the dates. Scott, however, said, I'm absolutely positive it was the night of the murders. Huh. Hmm. Well, that's just... How much later did Scott come forward, did you say? Soon thereafter. They started, you know, they started their investigation the next day. I don't know if it was a day or two days or what, but it was soon. Yeah. I don't know, man. If I could be mixed up if something happened on Saturday or Sunday... You know what I mean? Yeah, it's possible to get mixed up. It is. It's absolutely. It is. No, you're right. You're right. But remember also that 6.30 was around that time, that early evening time, right. when both father and son had heard those gunshots that they chose not to investigate. Right. Did Scott say he heard the gunshots? Uh, not that I Around that the I time read, no. he was no. showing up? I think, it's, it, remember, it's at a farmhouse. So when they say neighbors, it doesn't mean they're next door. He was coming up to the door. No, but yes, but if it had been five minutes before, he wouldn't have heard them. Ten minutes before, he wouldn't have heard them. So, you know, it could have been six, it could have been half hour. In early evening, it could have been six o'clock, it could have been five. Oh, I thought he it said it was o'clock. around 6.30. No, 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 no. I said this was around the time that, that the, um, Vernon and Henry had heard the gunshots, and they said it was early evening. So, mm, okay. I, I don't know if it was 5.36, 6.30, what? But Scott said he came to the house at 6.30. So, if it's just, a, I don't know, five or ten minutes before that, he's not going to hear the gunshots. Okay, makes sense. Police took Vernon in for questioning, but he stuck to his story. Yeah. I came in at 8 o'clock. I found them dead. I didn't do this. And with no murder weapon and no real physical evidence, the case was kind of stalling. So what was a Canadian investigator to do? Well, how about you call in a psychic? I knew that. Of course you do. (laughs) Someone who can read minds and understand the psychology of a criminal mind, and that is exactly what Inspector Hancock decided to do and he legit this is a major this is edmonton chief detective and he says i'm gonna call him a psychic because it just so happened as luck would have it that canada had a very famous vietnamese viennese (laughs) they had a famous viennese psychologist right there in their midst as this occurred the esteemed at least as he told it maximilian lags I'm going to have trouble with his name. Langsner, L-A-N-G-S-N-E-R. Maximilian? Maximilian. Very, very popular name in Austria. Really? Langsner was at that time demonstrating his psychic abilities and having like lectures and talks about mind reading and things like that in Vancouver. Mm. I know where that is. Okay, Carrie. (laughs) See that? So proud. She knows where stuff is. She knows where Vancouver. Well, she knows where Vancouver is. That's (laughs) on the left side. And I know where Quebec is too. It's on the other side. (laughs) She's like a geo whiz. She's really smart. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's the middle that confuses me. Yeah, it's all big stuff in the middle. I got you. I got you, Carrie. The middle of our country confuses me too. Okay. Good. Good to hear. All of our listeners in the in the you know quote unquote middle of the country, (laughs) Carrie doesn't know anything about you. So. The um, Maximilian Langsner had studied under none other than Sigmund Freud. Oh, so his well fides, then. Uh, his bona fides were beyond reproach, at least in 1928. Yeah. And that was the shizzle. Freud, of co- course, for our listeners, he was the father of psychoanalysis. He was right about understanding that much of human behavior 
rest in the that complicated world of the brain and the subconscious. Mm-hmm. He was, however, wrong about pretty much everything else he said for his entire life and set back the field of psychology yep. uh, for, what, a century? Maybe? Yeah, about. It's not true that all boys want to kill their father no. and are in love mom. with their mother. No. Nope. None of that. That was just Sigmund. <laughs> He just put, him. He, he was alone in that. Yeah, he, he put his little weird hangups, and he made everything about sex and nothing well, about anything else. Him and Shakespeare, a, was very Shakespearean too. Well, he kind of got it from <sighs> yeah, Carrie Shakespeare. No, from Greek tragedy actually. So yeah. it's, okay, let's blame Oedipus. Yeah, or whoever there you wrote go. that. I Pop forget. Oedipus. So Langsner, however, has not stopped there by studying under the esteemed Sigmund Freud. He had visited India after that to study under yogis okay. and learn the mystic ways of the East. Always a good call for the yeah. scientist. He was particularly tip. interested in how these yogis interacted with the human mind and learned to control mental processes, right? Mm-hmm. He felt, Langsner, that when under stress, the human mind sent out signals, and these signals can be read by someone who's adept at picking them up. Oh, so, okay. and that's kind of the subject of the talks he was giving in Vancouver at the time when these, the Boer murders occurred. And Inspector Hancock had heard about that, so knew him from the, the press coverage. Because he had told everyone, by the way, in his talks, how various European police forces had tapped into his psychic abilities to help them solve crimes. The Canadian press had eaten this up, covered it extensively. Langsner said he had solved the unsolvable in Bucharest, Leipzig, and even in, in China and all kinds of places in between. He was this, in his telling, he was this legendary guy helping sure. solve crimes through his psychic mind reading ability. Mm-hmm. In Berlin, for instance, he said that he had discovered a jewel thief by simply sitting and staring at the suspect until he sensed the inevitable signal from the man's mind. <laughs> the signal apparently included the location of the stolen jewels mm. because he then went and told the police, hey, they're hidden X, whatever. The police went and found the loot hidden where he said it was hidden, arrested the culprit, and voila, Lagsner was this psychic. In uh, Lagsner's telling of the story, yeah. yeah, yeah, is this even true? And he had apparently performed a very similar feat just recently for the Vancouver police. They had come to him for a similar case and a similar outcome, mm. apparently, according to Langsner. Yes. Okay. And according, I, th- I believe, according to the to the contemporaneous. Canadian press as well. Huh. I mean, he would be huge on YouTube right now. Yeah. Langster. He'd be yeah. legendary. So naturally, Hancock thought Langster would be able to help determine who may have murdered Mrs. Boer and the rest of the victims. So they sent a telegram to him. I'm assuming they didn't like think at him. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's a phone call. I don't know. <laughs> Did Canada have phones in 1928? Carrie probably doesn't think so. <laughs> well, so. yeah, because Dr. What's his name called? The constable. <laughs> I was just teasing you, Gary. I know, but I'm just demonstrating my listening abilities. That's very good, good job. Though. Yeah, without even taking notes, by the way, people. I would have taken <laughs> copious notes by now. Yes. Hearing nothing is all up here. a page and a half at the good. moment. Probably so. So Langsner came east to help out. He arrived in a few days. He was about 35 years old at the time. He was very well-dressed. He was said to be this dapper Viennese, you know, Austrian gentleman. He, and he's also said, by the way, to look a lot like the French actor Adolphe Menjou, who was very popular at the time. You might remember him from, and I have no idea what movies he was in, but he was in. Who is he? He's a pretty famous actor, Adolphe Menjou. He was. Well, but, okay, we're talking about the 20s. Who 30s. knows? Any oh, 20s, actors. you're right, you're right. But he was actually at the time a pretty well known actor. And so he looked like him a little bit. So, you know, Heart pretty throbby. dashing. Pardon? Heartthrobby. Heart, yes, let's go with that. Before the name Adolphe was tarnished forever. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Bad timing for Adolf Menju. That's true. And he no, had he, he was had fine ambience, at twenty eight. So in twenty eight, yeah, he was fine. Yeah, he was big. Langston described himself for the press as quote a Viennese criminologist, psychologist, hypnotist, and mind reader extraordinary who spoke sixteen languages fluently, <laughs> consultant and advisor to the Khedive of Egypt, Ooh. the Shah of Persia, and the British Foreign Office. Of course, of so course. So he was good obviously. at, at self promotion anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so he was a big shit. There's a picture of it. You know, he's not super dashing. But he looks a lot. That must be much older, much later in life. Yeah, he is older here. Okay. That's a, that's a 20s Carrie guy. Carrie's his pictures of Adolf He was Menchu. born in 1890. Okay, so he's so 38 at this time. There he is. He's got a mustache. He looks very French. Not, he's not, American. Not, he was American? Uh-huh. I did not know that. Good okay. for him. Well, good for him. Okay, anyway, that's what he looked like. Born in <laughs> Pittsburgh, we'll, we'll died a, in Beverly Hills. Really? We'll yeah. put a picture up of Adolf. Because I don't know that we're going to have pictures of Dr. <laughs> Anybody <else>? Langsner. <laughs> so here is how Langsner explained his method to the Edmonton police when he got there. He says, quote, well, this is very simple. You see, thought waves are just the same as waves of light, or sound, or wireless waves, but you must be equipped to receive these waves just as you must have a receiver to translate radio waves into words and music. I am, of course, so equipped. Mm. Okay, he's quack. He's Gary. He's ahead of his time, or behind. I'm not sure. Okay. Both. Maybe a little. Maybe a little both. So on the way to the farm, the ha- the the Boer farm, he was driving with Hancock. Langsner expressed some unease. He said, "Quote: I hope it will not be too late when we get to the farm. You see, thought waves differ in their power, and of course, the thought waves of someone who has killed four people would be of very high intensity and would stay around the area of the crimes for a considerable period of time. So he believes in run-on sentences. But it is <laughs> nearly a week now since these murders. I shall need to feel all the waves if I can. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so he's gonna go out there and just like feel waves, try to okay. send some some leftover waves." Sure. Which is what he did. And after visiting the farm, the next thing Langsner wanted to do, he wanted to go and visit Vernon Boer, who, as you recall, they had arrested him, and just sort of feel him out. This is the top suspect. Let me go see what I can see with him. Just let me in the room with him. I'll do my staring thing. And not surprisingly, Hancock agreed. said, sure, let's go Go for it. Because Hancock was the guy who called him in the first place. Yeah. So he did. He... Just, I stood or sat right outside the cell door and just stared at, at Vernon Boer. Waiting and for a transmission. I, apparently so. And they said, after just a few wordless minutes, Langster said, the rifle is unimportant. He is guilty. He admitted it to me. Oh, End my quote. gosh. Oh, wow. <laughs> Why is the rifle unimportant? It's very because important. Because he, he, he doesn't know what the rifle is. Yeah, good. wow. So, <laughs> obviously, Langster was really good. I mean. I mean, damn. I think that goes After a couple of minutes. But even Hancock, he reminded the dapper doctor that they would need proof to actually charge Vernon with murder. So they really, really wanted to find that rifle. Hancock thought that was the key. If we can find the mm, rifle, we, yeah. can, we can stick it to him. And he thought this guy was going to lead them to the rifle. Yes. And he also thought he thought the rifle would lead to a confession. Right. right. Vernon. So the police asked Langsner to go to the inquest and just sort of, you know, tell him what, they, what he thought. Wait, did they look under Vernon's bed? Ah, oh, let's say yes. Oh man, yes. that's the one place they didn't check. Damn it! They rush back to the house. No, okay. <laughs> under the mattress. Either. No, damn it! They go rush back again <laughs> to the house. We thought you meant under the frame, but under the, okay, let's check. Let's say yes. Okay. Let's say they did. They told Langster to pose as a journalist. 
I guess. I don't know if they were trying to avoid embarrassment. I don't see how because it was, you know, Hancock had openly asked this guy to come investigate. So, but apparently it was maybe so Vernon didn't know or didn't raise any suspicions, whatever. He posed as a journalist. He went to the inquest. And by the way, if you don't know what an inquest is, am I over explaining here? It's, it's a, it's a sort of like a pretrial, I guess. It's like a hearing is in Canada and England, especially we have them here, but not in the same way. And if there was a crime, essentially they're, they're determined, Hey, was there a crime committed? And do we think we know who did it? Typically it's just say it was, you know, whatever murder, by a person or persons unknown. That's the, if it's clear murder, like it was in this case, they're just saying murder by person or persons unknown. So that's what they're doing there. Okay. It's it, it, it's early on, so typically they just they make that determination and then the police do their investigation and go from there. Okay. Langsner focused on the subject on Vernon and said he was able to intercept some of his thoughts, as luck would have it. Again, after the inquest, he assured Hancock, "He's your man. He did it." But still, Hancock said, I need more. Right. So now they said, why don't you go do your sitting thing a lot you know, more intensely? So mm-hmm. they allowed Langsner to sit right outside Boer's cell. And they, they, he's put a chair and he sat right outside his cell. They figured he's surely going to pick up on Vernon's mental signals and that will tell them all they need to know, which is solid reasoning. Mm-hmm. So Langsner propped his chair right outside the bars of Vernon's cell and he just stared at him. Just went to work. Just looked at him the whole time. Nonstop, didn't say a word. Didn't expect Vernon to say a word either. He thought, he told Hancock that he's surely going to understand what I want to know. And one of those things is where did I hit the weapon? So he's going to be impossible for him to keep that out of his mind. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to know where he hit the weapon. <laughs> and then, you know, if, if he does think these thoughts, I'll snatch those thoughts out of the sphere and be able to tell you in case close. So he went at it. He went at it for an hour. But not just an hour. Oh, God. Not just two hours. Not three. Five hours. Wow. Of just staring. Langsner stared at Vernon five hours straight, nonstop. Just out of his reach, too. Must have been, you know. Right. Over, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming he thought, he might come grab me. Let's scoot back a little bit. So Vernon tried to ignore him. He tried screaming at him. Oh. He, for sure, I'm sure, tried really, really, really hard to keep thoughts of where he had hidden the rifle. I if just, he had. I out of his mind. Try to fall asleep. <laughs> I would too. I don't know what time of night it was, but it was no use. After those five hours, the doctor said, boom, I have it. I know where the rifle is. Oh, okay. Wow. So I'm Langster, intrigued. they gave him a pad and paper and, uh, and he sketched a diagram of the Boer family farmhouse and he pointed where they would find the murder weapon. He said it was hidden in a clump of grass or brush or something like that. Just west of the farmhouse, he said, is maybe 500 yards or so west of the farmhouse. That's where you'll find it. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. Whoa. Really? The police went back to the farm. They took Langster with them. Langster kind of got there, checked out the lay of the land, and then he started trotting toward the barn. And the, the Hancock would say it was like he was hunting for a pheasant. You know, he's like a hunting dog. <laughs> he was like on the, on the scent kind of a thing. So Hancock trailed behind him, and just as they jogged past the barn, and they looked to a line of kind of marshy brush area, about 140 yards past the barn, it's like, that's it. So they both started walking over there, and Hancock testified that he saw Langster, that, I'm sorry, Hancock testified that he and Langster saw the gun at the same time. He said, once you got close to that brush, and once you came upon it, it was right there, it was in plain sight. Yeah. Really? And Yeah. 
So it's like no effort to hide it, but right. so I don't know if it was tossed or just chucked in some way. Yeah. It's like you ran out and you threw it into the brush as opposed to like digging a hole or something yeah. like that. So it was done apparently pretty quickly. Because he probably didn't have a lot of time. Yeah. He said, it, um, uh, Langsner, I'm sorry, Hancock said it was plainly visible from a distance of several yards. Huh. Well, gentlemen, Langsner said, there is your gun. You'll find it is the murder weapon, of course. The thought waves are always readable. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sorry, always reliable. So they, this, could, they can do, uh, could they do fingerprints at this time? You know, there were no fingerprints on it. Oh, mm, okay. But they did identify it as the murder weapon. Okay. Now, I don't know if that means that Stevenson said, that's my gun. But, and I don't, I never heard anything about ballistic tests. I read anything about ballistic tests, but they said, that's it. Yeah. And it, it very likely was. Yeah. They came back, went back, and they showed Vernon the murder weapon. They told him where they had found it, and he broke down. He confessed. Damn. His father, his father and sisters were looking on in tears as he confessed to having murdered his mother. And brother. And brother. It was wow. thoroughly premeditated. He said he had sneaked out of church the Sunday before the murder and stolen the rifle. And like you said, he, had, he just kind of, he knew I would be gone, perfect right. time. So he sneaked out, rode his horse, his sorrel pony to the Stevensons, took the rifle, went and hit it somewhere, presumably. And, um, you know, and then waited a few days before he committed the act. The, I wonder, I don't know this for a fact, I wonder if he did that because that was the day his sisters were out of the house. Yeah. That's my suspicion. Like he didn't want them to. Right. Yeah, exactly. He thought, so be, he he thought doing, his mom would be there alone. Did he do it just out of spite because he, he was it, angry at her? Exactly. It was or, the girlfriend whole wow. thing. It was, it was absolutely 100% because of the girlfriend thing. Just leave home and yeah. go be with your stupid girlfriend. Well, he's probably not the most mentally stable <laughs> kid in the world. Yeah. He, um, he said that he had been in love with her. His mother had ruined the relationship, and he, he, wanted, he wanted to marry her, and she had broken up with him due to he blamed his mother's interference. So he stole the rifle and shot her. He tearfully swore that he had only meant to kill his mom. He had mm-hmm. not meant to kill Fred or the farmhands. He didn't know the, that Fred was there in the house. He didn't know Fred was there until he rushed in, and he just reacted to her right. and shot him. And, and they asked why the farmhands. And he said, well, that was much more easy. He realized they must have nearby. Or, or maybe he was just checking nearby. And he saw that he, when he saw that they were nearby and would have certainly heard the shots, he felt he had to kill them both to have no witnesses. That, was, that much was much more simple for him and much more like, well, duh. Yeah. Kind of reaction, and he apparently. doesn't care about them. No. Yeah. Those aren't his family. Yeah. So. so Vernon said, quote, I want to get it all over with. I don't care if I'm hanged tomorrow. I killed mother as she sat at the table and then my brother Fred as he rushed into the house. I killed Gabriel Garambi in the bunkhouse and Bill when he came in from the field. It was mother's and Fred's constant nagging at me about a girl I was crazy about that was the cause of it all. I had it planned out for some time. So apparently Damn. Fred had also, his older brother had also, yeah. I don't know, they thought she wasn't good enough for him or what, but... Yeah. But still, the indication was that Fred was, like he said, Fred was an accident, but apparently Fred had also nagged him Yeah, about that. It was the So would was he small. have shot his sisters if they came home early from shopping, and would he have shot his dad and other brother? I'm sure he would have. Probably, yeah. He didn't have, <sighs> Fred was his only brother. Vernon, Vernon, Vernon. Yeah, Vernon's, oh, that's he, right. Well, he's not a great guy. Clearly. No, clear. uh, he's my least favorite yeah, boober. Uh, the boober. Yeah, I agree, <laughs> I agree. He's my least favorite Canadian other than Justin Bieber. So, <laughs> oh, this Justin Bieber then him? Yes, I mean let's I be feel reasonable. It. Let's I get be, that. Let's be honest. I don't like that. Drake. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't know Drake that well. I'll I be don't honest know Drake with you. That well, I don't is know. that who I'm thinking of? <laughs> no <laughs> I don't idea. know. Is it who you're thinking of? 
Wait, you know what? Oh, that's no, we're not mind readers. That's Langster. You think? Yeah, I can't. Let me just stare at you for a minute. I'm not. I'm not transmitting at the moment. Well, you have if to you come back later. <laughs> By the way, that could have been an immediate clue. How he did it. If the killer was like a drifter or something like that, he's just you'd leave. You don't go track down the farmhands because they might have heard you and be able to, um, you know, say, yeah it happened right there and come in and see you or whatever, you just flee and you're not ever seen by those farmhands so you don't really need to kill them. Yeah. So that, just the fact that the farmhands were killed where they were killed was also another clue in hindsight that it was clearly an inside job. It's someone who stayed there, who lived in that house. Right. So there's a trial. The mass murder trial started in September 25th, 1928 in Edmonton. That is to say about two months after the killings, not two or, or 10 years like it would now in the United States. After the first day of the trial, the Crown heard a rumor that Vernon had confessed to the local head of the Salvation Army, a man named Thomas Sutherland Stewart. So they tracked Stewart down, but he kind of, he played hard to get. He like avoided them. When they finally found him then, he, he wouldn't talk about it at all, so they arrested him and they forced him onto the witness stand in uh, court. Huh. And he still, even then, under, under oath, he said, I won't say anything. He cited his vows and covenants. And he compared himself to Judas, or at least in the sense that he wasn't going to be a Judas and betray faith, you know, something like that. Whatever you know, uh, that means. Yeah. He didn't want to turn, it would be a Judas to, to, to say what Vernon had said. It was said in confidence, whatever. I'm not going to do that. He refused to testify. Is he a clergyman? You know, he, Salvation Army is a religious org- organization. Yeah. But I don't know that you're considered a clergyman. Yeah, he had like yeah. a oh, he had like an adjutant general title or something like that. Interesting, huh? So I don't know that he's technically a clergyman, but he was I trying to sort of I don't know, the whole army thing. I don't think he was too. actually. Yeah, it's a little weird. I believe they wear epaulets too on their shoulders, yeah. which is even weirder. Epaulets, so and all white. Yeah. When told, however, that Vernon had released him from any duty, so Vernon like calls his lawyer and kind of whispers, and the lawyer said, "Vernon's releasing you from any kind of a duty you might feel." Then, rather than uh, Stewart, rather, finally, okay, he admitted it. He said, "Yes." While I visited Vernon in his cell, he had asked me, "Quote: Do you think God can forgive me after what I have done?" The court went hushed. Damn. I mean, that seemed like a confession of murder. Sure. Yeah. Vernon's defense attorney, a man named Clay. He said, no, 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 well, hold on. That can mean almost anything. I mean, he's not talking about the, the, those recent mass murders of his family. He meant, uh, who knows? He, about, you know, that time he stole yes. a pack of gum from the store. Didn't take out the trash. That's what he meant, because he's a defense lawyer. So the prosecution called Langsner to the stand, our, our psychic psychologist. Uh-huh. And he was, he was sort of glib and convincing, he ditched a lot of his really theatrical kind of nonsense, and he came off as a little bit more of a sober psychologist. Mm-hmm. But he did make a mistake, at least in the eyes of the judge. He mentioned he had the power of hypnosis mm-hmm. among his other you know, mental talents. The defense pounced. They said, okay, wait, wait, hold on. Maybe you hypnotize Vernon during those staring sessions, and you got him to confess these murders, and these murders were under some kind of influence of your mind yeah. through hypnosis. There was little understood what exactly that could do. Yeah. So the defense uh, uh, brought this forward, and so uh, Langsner said, no, I'm not that good of a hypnotist. I'm, you know, <laughs> I couldn't do that. So they went and found, I don't know how they did this, but fairly quickly they found a former student of Langsner's. His name was Dr. Gessner. He was working in San Francisco. So I don't know, put the word out? I have no idea. But they found this guy, Gessner, and they brought him up to Edmonton, and he testified that, no, 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 Langsner, he was a superb 
superb hypnotist. Oh my goodness. One of the best. (sighs) He made everybody think they were a chicken. Yes, he did. That was enough for the judge. He ruled that Vernon's confession to the police was inadmissible. Oh my goodness. Which was a cornerstone of the case. Wow. At the time, this was the first time in Canada a confession had been thrown out by reason of hypnotism. Yeah. That's what I read. That's, I don't know if that means it's been it's happened since then. <laughs> it's possible. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's happened yeah, once. who knows? But they said it's the first time. Okay, well, if it's not the last, I fear for you, Canada. The first of many. Many times. It's happened. Of course, it's an annual occurrence now. So the trial continued. Langster was was very upfront about who he was, what he did, his methods. On the witness stand, Langster told the jury of his visits to Vernon's cell and his his whole silent stare down thing, all of that. Words were not needed since he could get all he needed to know from Vernon's thought waves, he told him. So he was saying, yeah, I know yeah. I'm a mind reader, and yeah. like, that's how I did it. It's amazing to me. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well. That they'd want him to yeah. <laughs> would not let him anywhere near that court. The judge even asked Langsner if, you know, you're a mind reader, right? And Langsner said, yeah, I am. So what? he asked the doctor naturally, Basically, what am I thinking right now? Yeah. Earlier, Langsner had talked about his past, right? And he had talked about several things he had done in his past, one of which was he had been actually arrested for assault back in Vienna. And he said, well, that was because I threw out a drunk who was insulting my wife, is what any gentleman would do, right? Very, as a, as a colorful story, everybody laughed. And, and, and so, logically, you'd think, if you're going to take a guess, Maximilian, that's the guess. So the judge asked him, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about one of the events you just testified about earlier today. What, what is it? And Langsner demurred. He said, well, 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 hold on. He complained that the thought waves were like those from a radio. And with all the people and the drama in the yeah. courthouse, there was just too much static. Yeah. Literally static going on. So I don't know. So he was too chicken, ironically, to take uh-huh. that pretty obvious guess. And the judge said later, yeah, no, I was talking about the time he threw that, that drunk out yeah. of his house when he was, a, so come on, you would have been much more impressive, Maximilian, if you'd said that. So the defense attorney, Neil McLean, was absolutely brutal towards Langsner. He really used them against the Crown's case wow. in his summation, his, his summing up there at the end. Yeah. He called the psychologist, quote, snake eyes. He said he was an Austrian charlatan. A disreputable convict, that was a reference back to when he'd thrown out and he'd been uh, charged with assault, he noted that he was a foreign hypnotist, <laughs> and he reminded the jury that he had been on the wrong side of World War I, which had just ended about a decade ago, and many Canadians had died during that. So well, he, he personally? Did I, they ask he was him? on the wrong side. That's all we're going to say. How do you know that? Because he's Austrian. Yeah. So he was. Right. He was Austria-Hungary with Germany. And the Ottoman Empire were the, the bad guys. They were the enemy in the World War One. So he's using he's going all jingoistic, sure. Yeah. But he also ascribed any mind reading powers he claimed to have to just guessing. He started just shy, a sideshow act. Yeah, it was a mental what we now call a mentalist act. Yeah. So McLean pulled out all the stops, but it was no use. The jury mm-hmm. was out for only about an hour and forty minutes. And they came back and announced Vernon's guilt. Have the jury already heard that he that Vernon confessed? Yes. Okay. So hold hold on here, yeah. But you're but good thinking, Carrie. Yeah, you can't take it back after I really yeah. strike that. Okay. Okay, well, never mind. Well, let's I just unremembered it. Somebody did the red thing with the men in black. So the judge tearfully sentenced Vernon to death. He was really, you know, broken up about it. Yeah. Why? Say, I don't know. Because he, he was young? he felt for the kid. He was twenty. Well, was it a mandatory death sentence? Why didn't you just put him in jail forever? 
I don't know. You, you'll have to ask the judge back ah, in time. I'll What's have his name? To, I don't know. I'll email <laughs> him. So they sentenced him to hang on December 15th of that year. Hang, wow. McLean, the attorney, though, he was not done. He appealed based on exactly what Carrie said. They had mentioned and talked about the confession before mm-hmm. it was thrown out. And it was, it was later disallowed. I demand a retrial. They gave it to him, which seems, you know, pretty justified. Yeah. If, if that major evidence has already been talked about, you pretty much should order a new trial right when that happened. But they didn't. They kept, they kept plowing through. Uh, However. What? His confession was not coerced. No, it was. It was, it was hypnotized coerced is what they ruled. Yeah. So, yeah. He didn't confess to Langsner. He confessed after they found the gun. Yes, but he had he already wasn't been hypnotized already. In so. order to find the gun. Yes, but I, I guess what they said is that he was under hypnosis, so maybe there was some power of suggestion. Oh, so he like never... You're in two, when they find the gun and I bring it back, you're going to confess. Yeah. All oh. I say the word chicken scrap, and you then... I don't know what it was, but okay. somehow he was under the hypnotic power of Langsner. Oh, And, and that God. included not just being able to read his mind, but, but confessing. Okay. So they had a retrial. It's pretty anticlimactic because Langsner, in the meantime, he had left town. So he wasn't available for the trial, so he wasn't there. The Salvation Army guy that caused all that drama by refusing to testify, he already knew he could testify, mm-hmm. so it was much more anticlimactic. And the, the whole confession question had already been settled. So McLean still railed on about Langsner in absentia, so he still brought him up. And he was really angry that the authorities had even brought him into the case calling the authorities unfit to be in the positions for doing that. Yeah. And yeah, you can't really disagree there, with yeah. that. Again, though, it was no, to no avail. And Vernon, who clearly was guilty, exactly. mm-hmm. was declared guilty a second time. Again, the judge sentenced Vernon to death, this time possibly without tears. I don't know. And when he was sentenced to death the second time, Vernon cried out, the evidence is against me. I am not guilty. Oh, my. <laughs> Which does not indicate... A grasp of logic? Yeah. yeah. Because it's kind of the other way around. Yeah. So Langsner basked in his glory. He went back to uh, Vancouver, and he was covered extensively by the Canadian press. He would later go to Toronto and wear a disguise because he thought he was so famous. <laughs> he um, Actually, there was a famous uh, Ambrose Small murder in Toronto around that time that I, I would, I would, it's a mystery that still to this day is unsolved, and I wouldn't mind covering it in, one of, in, a, in a podcast episode one of these days, but he was very minorly involved in that and supposedly investigated it but didn't get anywhere. Langster started a show at a hotel in Vancouver to do his mind reading skills, right, for the exorbitant ticket price of $3, which is a pretty high-priced ticket for the time, yeah. Nice. The s- major set piece for his show was when he showed off his ability to stop two cocks from fighting with a snap of his finger. So they'd be, they'd be taken out of bags, set at each other, fight. He would snap his finger. They'd both pass out, like, like just go quiet. Mm-hmm. And he snapped again. They'd start fighting again. And then he'd snap again, and they'd go quiet. They'd put it back in the bags and take him off. Wow. So he, his shows were sold out. He was a good cock tamer. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I have so many jokes for that, but I'm not going to say. Thank Langsner, you. yeah. Your daughter's at the table. Uh, Langsner, <laughs> <laughs> Langsner apparently kind of took to Canada also, even after that, because he left Vancouver and he went north to research psychic abilities in the Inuit population. Mm. <laughs> Don't know what happened with that. He was last heard from in 1939 as he prepared to leave for a tour of the Middle East. And then never heard from again. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Something happened to him or something like that, or he huh. just, you know, fell. Probably from died. Coverage, maybe. Pol- polar bear got him. 
In, in the, the Middle, Middle East. East, yes, in the Middle no, East. No, before you said he was preparing to go to the Middle East. Yeah, so, okay. So maybe. you assume he was in Polar yeah. Bear Country in, in that, okay, maybe, yeah, maybe. Maybe he never got off the ground. Oh, I see. Mm. Oh, that's good. He never R- made on it the boat the or You're whatever. right, you're R, a polar bear snuck on the boat to the Middle East <laughs> and killed Middle him East. on the boat. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe. That's probably the most plausible. That makes sense. I, I'm going to say that was Carrie's theory. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Vernon Brewer, you could think, what happened to him? Yeah. Oh, he was hanged. Yeah. Wednesday, April 24th, 1929, life was extinguished. Or as the guy in McLean said, April 26th. I swear to God, almost every fact, the guy in the McLean's thing had a different fact. Huh, really? Everybody else had it. It was really annoying. So Maybe I, I, he's the one that was right. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Because okay. you know how those internet things are. They all get That's it from true. a single source. I know, but I don't know what the source was. Yeah. I don't know. A couple exactly. of the sources were based on books, too, including some one, well, from an author I think is, is legit. Anyway. Uh, first, I mean, we won't do theories a little bit, but the first thing is like, did this really happen? Did he really tip them off in this way? Did he really say, I'll find the, you know, there could be some yeah. kind of urban legend here where he, did he really go right to the gun? Did he really draw a sketch? Did he really do this? Uh, you know, I, I think the answer is yes to that. This appears to be yeah. what happened. It's, like I said, there's reputable sources. McLean's again was a, he may have got some some facts wrong, but that that had happened 22 years before that article was written. Is yeah, in, in a very reputable magazine. Maybe when no one was paying attention, he went out and scoured the entire uh, honestly area honestly. and found it, and then. I thought about that. I mean, could it just be a, a, a smart guess? Yeah. Absolutely. You right. know it has to be somewhere nearby. You know he did not have a lot of time to get rid of that gun. Yeah. People, he had to think someone, or at least in the mind of a murderer, someone must have heard this. I don't have long. I, I already killed him two hours ago. I need to call someone and get going on this thing. So, so yeah. And it had to be somewhere on the farm, you know. Um, so he sees that clump of brush, and otherwise, you know, flat featureless land. He just had to be a little smarter than the average 1928 Canadian investigator. Yeah. That's all. Right. So it's possible. He did make a, a very nice guess. And if it didn't happen, the, there was static. Yeah. I mean, every, every psychic has always has that excuse. Or there was a non-believer nearby. Yeah. So, may, yeah, I thought about that too. It's po- is it possible that Boer maybe really did confess to him with actual words, not thought waves? Right. And, you know, he pretended it was thought waves. Yeah. Very possible. I mean, he's Vernon, talking for five hours. He's got yeah. five hours of access to him. And Vernon's not going to say, you're lying, I told you that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Wait a second. And you yeah. got to think, if someone's staring at you for five hours, that's an interrogation technique without yeah. hypnosis and sound yeah. waves. Like, you, you'll get worn out. Yeah, so it, it could be that. Or it could have been he was a mind reader and he read thought waves. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Could be. I don't know. We have no way of knowing. Nope. And, and again, Langston had been out to the thought. It seems like he, if I read it right, he had been out to the farmhouse prior to that supposed thought wave reading. And so, like he said, it could have been just yeah. that's that's a that's kind of an obvious place to hide it relatively. Yeah. Which tells you the and, and, and by the way, they could have also he could have known they had checked the house, the bunkhouse, the barn. So, yeah. Okay, it can't be there. What am I going to guess? Well, those those bushes, five hundred yards away. Yeah. Right? Why wouldn't the police have searched That's all great, that? Again, yeah. smarter than an average Canadian yep. detective in 1928. I'm not bagging on Canadian detectives all. <laughs> That's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of those people aren't geniuses, so mm-hmm. they didn't think of that. He did. Maybe. I don't know. And, you know, there's even the possibility, and I think someone entertained it at the time, or at least it was brought up, is that was that really Charles Stevenson's weapon? Could he have mm. t- gotten a Lee Enfield 303 and put that in the brush himself? Uh, Maximilian uh, oh. Langsner, I mean. 
is it possible? Like yeah. I said, as far as I can tell, there were no fingerprints, and I, I read nothing about ballistics. Did he Whether they brought it to Stevenson, and Stevenson, yeah, that's my weapon, I don't know. I didn't read that for sure, but yeah. you think they would. And and Langsner had that information, what kind of weapon yes. it was? Yeah, it was, okay. it was the newspapers. Oh, hey, I vote for that one then. It's possible, but like I said, that's... don't you think they would have brought it to Stevenson? But you never know. Well, Stevenson kind of led, okay, we got to get this guy. This yeah. is the inference we need. We all know he did it. Charles, just say that's your gun. Yeah. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what the right answer is for that. Interesting. But that's the story of the mind reader and the mass murderer. Well, thanks for that old-timey story. Old-timey. Thank timing. you. Yeah. 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 I, again, a little-known one. I had not heard of that until, I don't know. I hadn't heard of that one A few one months either, yeah. ago. So. I, I can't believe you haven't heard of that I one. I can't it's either. Shocking. When I do find these kinds of things and I've never heard of it, I'm a little surprised. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Seriously. Yes. <laughs> How did I not run across that? So, yeah. That's crazy. So, that's it, Kelly, Carrie. Tell them where they can find us. I don't know her name. No. Uh, Weird World Podcast. Uh, at Gmail and on Facebook and Instagram and Patreon and Weird World Pod on Twitter. Okay, nice. Thanks. That's all the places. We should probably say that at the front one of these days. Maybe. Because <laughs> no one's listening right now. Yes, they <laughs> are. Okay. Thank you for listening all the way through. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for listening next time. See you. Bye.